Beneath the surface of the former Soviet Union lay a deep and painful secret. The state had forced its citizens to disavow their cultural heritage and abandon their desires for self-discovery, creating a fragmented sense of identity in many, well before adulthood. As a mixed-race child, I felt the loss of self acutely, struggling with guilt and inadequacy for years after escaping to America. But it wasn't until I stumbled upon a collection of untranslated letters and met a group of Romani children in Prague that I began to confront my past and rediscover my true identity. In my memoir, All of Us Fragile and Brave, I invite readers to join me on my six-year journey of healing and self-discovery as I came to understand that mere assimilation and integration could not undo the damage inflicted by a toxic relationship with one's homeland. My story is a testament to the power of emotional resilience and the human spirit's unwavering ability to transcend the most daunting obstacles. Universally, my story is also about our complex relationships with our homeland. It's a journey of rediscovering true identity, delving deep into the impact of cultural and generational trauma, and finally finding a sense of mission and purpose in the midst of emotional turmoil. an excerpt from Oksana Malafiotti's book proposal for her new memoir, All of Us Fragile and Brave. And I, uh, Stephanie Schaefer, would like to welcome you with this opening to a new episode of Lady Fiction. I'm the host of Lady Fiction, a podcast dedicated to reading women, published by Amerika Zentrum Hamburg. Today, we will be talking immigration, identity, and memoir a topic ever more pressing in, the, in our day and age. In early May 2023, the U.S. lifted the dubious Title 42 law, which was based on pandemic health measures and used only once to date in 1929. Under the onslaught of the pandemic in 2020, the previous administration revoked it to prevent the spreading of the COVID virus. But it actually enabled the government to expel more than 2 million migrants from the U.S. at the southern border without having to consider their potential rights to claim asylum. Looking further into the past, we're also anticipating the centennial of the 1924 Immigration Act, a federal act also known for one of its components, the Asian Exclusion and so-called National Origin Acts, which rendered illegal immigration from Asia and set quotas for immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe. Almost a century ago, the Immigration Act established a U.S. Border Patrol for the purpose of, quote, preserving the ideal of U.S. homogeneity. Conversely, in the U.S. cultural imaginary, migration and mobility, as well as starting anew and building a life, are all key foundational myths. In this sense, the Title 42 law and the centennial of the Immigration Act remind us of the racial and racist politics in the frequent disregarding of human rights and immigration politics. In this push and pull, Lady Fiction today seeks to look at individual experiences and the question of who gets to tell which story, as well as discussing the struggle to get a voice in the first place, to make your story heard in the arts, in public memory, and in your own life. 
I'm very happy that today I will get to talk about this experience once more with the author, Oksana Marafioti, who joined us today from Las Vegas. Thank you for agreeing to come back to Lady Fiction, Oksana. I'm really excited about being back here, Stephanie. Thank you for inviting me. Let me introduce you once more to our listeners. Oksana Marifiotti is a best-selling American writer and activist of Ukrainian, Romani, and Armenian descent. She aligns strongly with all of her cultures, and her writing, widely published as in Rumpus, Slate, and Time magazines, often explores themes of identity, belonging, and multiculturalism. American Gypsy, a memoir, was published in 2012 by uh, FSG Originals. Oksana is a recipient of the 2013 BMI Library of Congress Kluge Center Literary Award and the University of Leipzig's Picador Guest Professorship Award in 2020. She is also the current recipient from the National Endowment for the Arts for her memoir in progress, All of Us Fragile and Brave. So, Oksana, um, you read us a part from your book pitch that brings together the strands of storytelling that you're working on, the memoir telling, uh, the looking beyond trauma, and uh, the immigrant experience. Why, this is a provocative question, why are you writing a second memoir um, <laughs> after your first one? That's a good question. <laughs> You know, it's taken me over 10 years to decide that I needed to explore my past further. I think when people write memoirs, it's usually because there are questions that remain unanswered about the past, and they seem relevant enough to what's going on in the present world and relevant enough to hopefully connect with the audience who might be going through similar experiences. I didn't know that I was going to write this until I started to look at trauma from the perspective of how a culture can affect a, a person's sense of identity. And once I started doing research on that and discovered this treasure trove of things that have been written about it and other writers and memoirists who are exploring it and, you know, in the realms of sociology and psychology and political science, I thought, okay, you know, this is something that has affected me for my entire life as as an American immigrant. And I feel like there's something important to say on that topic. And there's something different maybe also to say from what you were saying in um, American Gypsy, right? I remembered when we first met, you had just published it. And I was so excited to read it. And uh, we talked about genre. Uh, we discussed, is it a coming of age? Is it, you know, what's the what's the relation, the generic, maybe also the bookshelf you want to put it on. And um, I'm so thrilled to hear that now you're, you're doing a second, but more enlarged. Also, maybe it sounds like it's, it's a more mind harrowing project as well. I think it's super brave. Well, hopefully it's not so mind-harrowing that I stop doing it <laughs> because that's, you know, people have been known to stop writing memoir if it gets too hard. Mm. But I mean, you know, my first book was more of an observation of the, the, the experience of immigrating from one culture to another culture. And I didn't realize how heavy, heavy it was going to be until I started writing it. In fact, when people started reading and, 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 writing letters to me and saying, you know, 
there's this dysfunctional family dynamic that's really fascinating and I can relate to it. I remember take, being taken aback by that. Mm -hmm. Like, what do you mean dysfunctional? Because <laughs> that was, I didn't even realize yeah. that not everybody had these experiences, right? So in a way, my first book was written from a place of unawareness. You know, it was just observation of experiences. I remember a friend of mine said once that it looked, it felt like I wasn't the main character in my own book that I was the observant mm. of everything that was going on mm. around me. And this book feels like from, you know, from the experience of writing the first book, I have grown into more self-awareness, the state of understanding and reflecting and, con you know, conceptualizing everything that happened to me. And I feel like I can make better commentary on that now mm -hmm. like I've matured enough you know <laughs> <laughs> of course but you know maturing is, is the thing that happens to all of us um but I Hopefully. what I really what I really also um find so interesting is that you cite two um eye-opening events um that are academic events so to speak more or less academic events one was a, as a archival discovery That you made, and the other one is a, a meeting um, on one of your reading tours with the Romani children in Prague. Mm -hmm. And so um, you write about this being trigger events for you that you realized, I I want to write a second book, and I want to delve deeper into the trauma, and also, you know, explore this connection between fragility and. Um, yeah, and, um, you know, daringness being brave, being brave enough to talk mm. about it and, you know, also accepting that there's not the one culture of departure that you came from, like you came out of the box, you emigrated to the United States, you fall into the new box and um, mm -hmm. find your identity anew. Uh, but it's it's much more complicated than that. Uh, so I think it's also, it sounds more academic. That's funny that you say that because I was talking to an agent a couple of months ago about it. And she saw my book proposal and he, she said, you know, it would be perfect for a university press. Huh. And I said, what? But I'm not writing an academic book. <laughs> But that's how she saw it, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe we can talk about um, a little bit about the different cultures that you come from, that you draw from. In the opening that you read us, you talked about the Soviet Union, but you also have a Ukrainian, a Romani and an Armenian um, backdrop. And there are... These are all different cultures that you carry and that you engage with. And um, they have been marginalized, specifically in the Soviet mm -hmm. Union. In your opening, you talk about having been brainwashed to adhere to the Soviet state in a nationalistic way. So whereas that's where the politics and also the academic distance maybe comes in. That's possible. I mean, I didn't really consider this too much again. I didn't look at it too closely until I started thinking about it more in the last few years, that there was an active effort to erase all any kind, any kind of diversity in the culture that I come from. And I'm speaking specifically of Soviet culture, mm -hmm. right? And it's funny because when I talk to my... FSU, former Soviet Union friends, many of them are not, are still not aware of that. Mm -hmm. So when I say, when I talk about this, any, any topics that have to do with erasure of diversity, many of them have no idea what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. And that's the state I was in only, you know, 
as even as I was writing the first book, really, you know, mm. and um, there's just I don't understand this, but I see this in every country that there's this erasure of there's there's always a um, some kind of a forbidden uh, boundary that the citizens of a country must not pass, mm. and it doesn't necessarily have to do with ethnic culture, you know, it could be gender culture or, you know, a multitude of different things, right? Whereas there's this normal state that is um, identified by the majority. And if you go outside of this normal state, whatever that means for you, that means that that somehow your identity is tainted. Mm. Mm. Does that make sense? You're so, being othered, yes. I yeah. mean, obviously. Yeah. And so yeah. for me, for the longest time, I didn't understand and I know this might sound really like I'm oversimplifying this and like it's common sense for, for many people. I didn't really understand how could I, how I could accept all of me. Mm. Mm. I had to choose, you know, okay, am I this? Am I, am I Ukrainian? Am I Soviet? Am I Armenian? Am I Roma? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe can you, can you, you know, give us some example from your experience, um, from your archive discovery and then the meeting with the Romani children, where you realized they were also going through erasure, this erasure process. Yes. So the reason that I went into the Library of Congress was to research a fiction book, and it was going to be this fun thing, um, fun story about, you know, in a fictionalized, like, alter universe and I was doing a lot of research on Soviet superstition specifically. Mm. And that's when I discovered these files of untranslated letters, uh, all directed, all written for to authority figures, either regional or even you know, some of them are written to American presidents like Jimmy Carter and, and all, so forth. And these all the writers were people who were being persecuted primarily for for their religious affiliations. And these letters were really fascinating to me, first of all, because I couldn't believe that they even survived. You know, how did they get to the Library of Congress? And they were archived, so they were not anywhere on display. Did you find out where, where, where they came from? No. Oh, wow. No, okay. there was some kind of yeah. a, uh, a religious organization that collected them and kind of put them in these... Uh, loosely bound files huh. but it doesn't exist anymore wow so you know um and some of these letters are just basic you know like we're, we're trying to go to church and we can't but others describe house arrests they describe people taking being taken into hospitals and being tested on as a form of intimidation, young people, old people, men, women, like everybody, children being taken away from families and never, never to be seen again. College, university professors disappearing mm. and their peers writing to their authorities and saying this person was arrested six months ago. We have no idea where they are. We haven't heard from them. All because they said something and I'm air quoting this anti-Soviet, yeah, right? Okay. Whatever that meant, because, yeah. you know, that could mean many different things. Yeah. <laughs> so when I saw this, I, I didn't know that this, that these people existed. I mean, I left Soviet Union when I was 15 years old, and I feel like I was very sheltered in my own experience mm. because my family was pretty well off, all things considered, and I didn't 
although I knew of these instances of prosecution and imprisonment f from stories by close relatives and family members, I didn't understand how far the reach was, right? So this kind of opened my eyes yeah. that these people were everywhere and they were trying to survive and they were brave enough to write these letters because writing letters, going to the authorities in the Soviet Union was a very dangerous thing to do. Mm. You know, talking to your neighbors was a dangerous thing mm. to do. <laughs> Opening up to anybody. So that was kind of the first moment. And I found these letters 10 years ago, you know, so I've been sitting on them, right? Kind of things percolating and thinking, okay, what can I, what can I do with these? Yeah. They need to be read, you know, they need to be out there, but what form can they take? So my memoir kind of started coming together around these letters in a way where I started to think about how I can place myself within the context of the emotional, mental, and spiritual angst and experiences of these people whose letters I'm reading, mm. these strangers. I am one of them. Yeah. Right? And what really kind of set me in this direction of writing a second book was then meeting these kids because... Let me let me go back just a, a couple of steps. When I wrote my first memoir, it broke me completely. All mm -hmm. right, and I, I remember I had a professor in in college who said, "When you write a book and you feel it's perfect, you need to break it. You need to find what's wrong with it, and only then do you actually start writing it." Mm -hmm. But what the first memoir did is break me instead. Oh wow! Okay. And so I started really. I went into the dark night of the soul state, right? The existential crisis. Yeah. And, you know, um, went through a divorce and everything. It changed my life hmm. drastically. And all of that because what happened because I lost my sense of identity hmm. after I wrote the book. Because, in fact, my sense of identity had a whole bunch of compartments and, and walls and it wasn't organic to me. It was a created identity based on the trauma, the cultural trauma and coming here and not resolving my relationship with my homeland. Mm -hmm. So for the next 10 years or so, I really didn't know what my purpose was. You know, what am I supposed to be? Am I a writer? Am I an academic? Am I a parent? Uh, am I Roma, Armenian, Ukrainian? I had absolutely no sense of belonging, Yeah. right? And so finding these letters was kind of a, a kind of a flashlight went on, right? Like, okay, you need to go in this direction. You can write because you're not the only one. Mm -hmm. There are many mm -hmm. people who are losing their sense of identity because of the environment that they're in, right? Um, and so back to the story with Roma kids in 2018, I visited Prague for the first time on the speakers tour and I met with a group of Romani children and I didn't really understand why I was on this speaker's tour. It was organized by the American embassy in Prague. And I thought, okay, well, this is kind of cool. They're inviting me to speak. It wasn't until I got there that I learned that they had uh, really um, uh, serious human rights violations and that EU was threatening to remove uh, Czech Republic from the EU wow. if they didn't you know, work on there. Mm. So I was brought in as the, the Roma, the successful Roma to show other people that, hey, Roma can be successful. Wow. <laughs> Which and is kind of sad. you weren't even told? <laughs> this is no, amazing. No, I was not. Mm. Okay. I was not told until my, I had a journalist who now is a great, very close friend of mine 
she mentioned it. And I thought, oh, mm. well, this actually makes a lot of sense now. Um, so these kids came out to see me because I'm a Roma from America, you know, an immigrant, and I made it in America, whatever mm. that means mm. to the to these kids, right? And they're asking me these questions. What do you do? You know, uh, just general questions about America, like can you eat, you know, burgers every day and just <laughs> funny stuff, right? Yeah. And this little girl turns to me and she says, well, what do you do in America? And I said, well, you know, I teach at a university. I write. I do this. I, I do that. I can do basically whatever. You know, I do many different things. And she had this kind of um, kind of a blank look, you know, like a vacant look on her face as if she's trying to process things. And then she says, oh, so uh, Aroma can do all of those things? Oh, wow. And that's where it hit me. And, you know, I tried not to break down and cry there. I did my crying after I left. And that's kind of what solidified my sense of purpose. And I thought, okay, there are a lot of people who don't have a sense of belonging and their identities are fragmented because of what they're being taught. You're not good enough. You don't belong, Mm. right? Mm. In various capacities. And I feel like with the second book, I can talk, speak on that and hopefully help people... Just become, you know, have the ownership, the autonomy of their experience, or Mm -hmm. at least take that first step towards understanding that they have that, you know? Yeah. Sorry, that was a very long-winded answer. Mm -hmm. But it makes a lot of sense because on the one hand, there's the reflection and the, the the introspective component that you talk about. But then there's this relation, you know, relating to the world from a certain perspective, discovering new uh, people and hearing new stories or maybe the absence of stories. That's that's shocking. And that's um, on a side remark. I think that's been that's been key, a key takeaway um, for many people in the pandemic that, you know, when we lose the possibility to talk to each other in person not just virtually Mm -hmm. then um there's a huge component of that interpersonal relation of that state of recognition in the philosophical sense this uh mutual seeing each other that happens in in presence that's lost too and um that's um i think a key component of going back to the stories and, and talking about how they can be told um and what the immigration experience may be also with the American myths that I talked about at the beginning, what it also glosses mm-hmm. over. You know, it's like, it, it's it's lots of sugarcoating that's happening there. Wow, you went to the United States, you know, you made it there. Um, you're now a writer, but there's it's so much more complicated than that. So um, absolutely, we talked so much about the what, you know, of what you want to do. Um, but I we also, when we prepped for this, we also kind of, you told me you had a book that you wanted to turn to that was influential um, and that helped you get a better grip of the how, um, how, um, right, the, how, how this story can be written. And that is uh, um, the 2018 book by Nora Krug, Belonging or Heimat. And uh, I was very happy to read it. Um, and now in the remainder of the podcast today, uh, we agreed that we would kind of, you know, turn to this book and, uh, you know, refracture some of the stories and some of the storytelling there because it's going to be such an important um, reference point in 
how, how stories are told. So um, Nora Krug's Heimat um, came out in 2018. Nora Krug is a German emigrate to the U.S. The book first appeared in English, um, and it's, uh, it's been called a graphic family memoir. But that's not really enough to describe what it does. But what I maybe want to use as a framing information for our listeners here is that it includes handwritten um, um, text from Krug's own writing. Krug is an um, illustrator. And uh, it's since been translated into 11 languages, including German. So she's a German who goes to live in the U.S., writes a book about her family back home, and uh, then it gets translated into German. And that's where the story also became super personal for me, because as um, a student, as, as a product of the German education system, but also as a student of uh, um, American literature and culture, and now as a scholar, um, I traveled the U.S. and I often had this experience that I could relate to Noah Cook's own experience of being the German face in the room and being confronted with all kinds of, you know, concepts of German history, of uh, the Third Reich, of uh, what Germans are in the world, and so on and so forth, and really not, you know, having to respond to that in some way. So that was my my own two cents of um, wisdom back then. I, I, I kind of developed this, you know, German canvassing storyline mm-hmm. uh, for people who would talk to me in certain ways and ask me to talk about my German family. And the starting point for Noah Krug's exploration into her own family history is on the one hand that she's married to a Jewish partner. So there's a, a Jewish you know, family that she marries into and she has to deal with her Germanness in that context. But also she said, you know, we know so much, we're taught so many things, but at the end of the day, we don't really know what our ancestors did. Um, and so she goes, looks in the archive, um, has um, key key experiences like you were talking about, and uh, she pulls together this story. So um, let's talk about how she does it and um, what spoke to you when you read it. I don't even know where to start. It's a absolute. It's such a fascinating narrative. You know, I have all these notes in the book that I was making as I was reading it maybe and first of all nora to be oh, to ahead. be a little bit more uh, concrete maybe we can start about uh, start talking about the material culture and the opening that we get um that is um basically a little reflection on the notebook of a of a nostalgic emigre and that's about band-aid good good mm. band-aid good german band-aid so that she starts with a material experience of things that you don't have in the new country that you miss do you want to read that little piece? Mm-hmm. So this is a bit of a premiere on Lady Fiction. I will be reading something in German. And uh, those native speakers uh, familiar with German will hear my local accent uh, from the southwest of Germany, which is also for where Noah Krug is from. And I think it might add a little <laughs> bit to this. So, aus dem Notizbuch einer Heimwegkranken Auswanderin. Katalog deutscher Dinge Nummer 1, Hansaplast. Das Hansa-Pflaster wurde 1922 entwickelt. Meine Mutter klebte dieses Pflaster auf mein blutendes Knie, nachdem ich einmal als Sechsjährige beim Rollschuhlaufen gestürzt war. Es gab für mich nichts Verlässlicheres als meine Mutter und Hansa-Plast. 
Hansaplast haftet zuverlässig sowohl auf dicker als auch auf dünner, auf straffer und auf faltiger, auf trockener und auf feuchter Haut. So lange, bis die Wunde ganz und gar verheilt ist. Es ist das hartnäckigste Pflaster auf der Welt. Und wenn man es abzieht, um die Narbe zu betrachten, die einem geblieben ist, schmerzt es. Hansaplast is a brand of bandage developed in 1922. My mother applied it to my bleeding knee after a roller skating accident when I was six years old. Next to my mother, Hansaplast was the safest thing in the world. No matter if your skin is thick or thin, smooth or wrinkly, dry or moist, Hansaplast is so reliable that it won't come off until your wound has fully healed. It is the most tenacious bandage on the planet, and it hurts when you tear it off to look at your scar. You know, as a writing teacher, um, especially as a memoir writing teacher, I often talk about how to begin your story, right? Because that's a huge thing. Mm. The setup is, is the payoff. It's connected to the end. So I often advise my writers to read the first page and the last page mm -hmm. and see if there's real important stuff happening there. And although this might not seem like an important way or a very interesting way to start a book, I feel like it's fascinating because it tells me that this book is about healing. Yeah. It tells me that often we are protected from pain by people who love us and they're not told a full story, right? But as long as we have the support that we need, we can discover the wounds, the scars. Mm -hmm. And it also tells me that we all have the scars, regardless of where we came from. And regardless of what is bandaged over, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, that's the same. I feel the same way about this opening, and I got hooked right away. Obviously, because I have this experience of Hansa Plus as well. Um, but yeah. it's also very true what she has to say about its reliability. It sticks so well that, you know, we have a, we have a saying in our family and says, when you have bad news to impart to somebody else, to give to somebody else, it's like pulling off a Hansa Plus. You know, do it quick because it's gonna hurt. Like, mm. technically, it's supposed to enable the healing but going back to the state without the Hansaplast, without the bandage is a rite of transition i think that you know Hansaplast users will be familiar with because um it sticks so well that when you when you pull it off it hurts it burns like um like rug burn so oh. that's um you know if in, in in our family we say if you want to break bad news to somebody just you know get it over with You know, rip it off, mm. be, be, uh, be brave and you know, it's coming and then, you know, do it. And that's it. So we can move on. And that's, exactly. that's the healing component that you talked about, mm. but it comes with pain. And this, the pain is inflicted by the bandage in this context. Um, mm -hmm. so, um, it's interesting to me that, um, the English version ends with scar that you read. And my mm -hmm. version um, ends with, um, I'm trans translating literally here how the phrases are built. Um, if you pull it off to look at the, um, the scar that will remain, it hurts. Oh. That's how that's, it ends. That kind of changes the meaning. Yes. 
I mean, I'm sure we can do an entire hour yes. about just talking about translation. Yes, yes, obviously. And I mean, Nora Krug did the, you know, she had a hand in the translation, or she probably did it herself. So she she will be the mm-hmm. better person to to respond to this. But here, the specific Hansaplast experience is is also it's related to being hurt, to having the mom, or you know, come and comfort you to put the bandaid on, but. Taking it off will hurt, and that's what the um, what the book does. Um, oh, she yeah. she has been bandaged, and she has been prepared, and she engages how and she talks about how she starts discovering things, but it's also she goes through hardship uh, to do maybe the healing and to deal with the nostalgia. So, um, absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's it's. Going back to fragmented identity, it it changed. I feel like it fundamentally changed the way she saw who she was. So I I saw this interesting talk by Brene Brown. I'm not sure if you've heard of her. She's a psychologist and a, a writer, and she talks about the difference about the difference between belonging and fitting in, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? And so she asks, what's the opposite of fitting in? And most people say, well, it's not fitting in, <laughs> right? But actually the opposite of fitting in is belonging. And I found this really fasc- fascinating when she explained it further mm-hmm. by saying that when you fit in, you change yourself to become a part of what is acceptable within a group or with other person, right? Yeah. But when you belong, that means that you're accepted as you are. Mm-hmm. That's and I think this the title for this book doesn't it all only have to do with her finding a sense of belonging in this world. It probably has more to do with her finding her sense of belonging within herself, mm-hmm. accepting who she is with everything that she found. We're not going to spoil the book, right? Mm-hmm. For everyone who no, wants no, to read no it. Spoiler, everything no that she discovered. Here. Yes. Right. Yeah. And still accepting who she is because that is who she is. Yeah. Right. We are all who we are. And the past is, a part of it and our ancestor ancestors are a part of it but that's the the thing that most of us resist mm. you know we don't accept who we are many of us struggle with who we are uh, whether it has to do with our cultural past where we come from in terms of the types of families we come from what we've done what kinds of things have been done to us so i feel like in this book she talks about Yes, her primarily her uncle and her grandfather, but it is her as well. Yes. Even though she wasn't an active participator, right? Yeah. It's more about the gaps. She she has gaps in the family knowledge and the family chronicle, and she starts exploring those, and some she can never fill with information, even though she finds um, many things in the archive. And that's another thing that I find mm-hmm. so intriguing when I uh, researched on how this was translated. Um, the German and the English versions apparently compare. Um, the German is bigger and longer <laughs> because the texts are going to be longer. So, you know, they're, they're more verbose, um, uh, just like what we read about the Hansa Plus. But also in the German version, the documents that she finds, um, she, they are facsimiles of the documents, let's say of the... Um, Spruchkammerakten, which is, um, which was a legal process of denazification after 45, which all, mostly all men in the American sector were, uh, examined 
their participation was examined and there were categories where they uh participants where they you know first rank nazis and so so on and so forth and uh, so these um documents are in the archives and you can access them and they're reproduced in in the german version of course for german readers because we will be able to read them even though the handwriting a hundred years ago was uh, Zutalin, but it's uh, i can i can read them uh, and she read them too as a american emigre returner to her hometown and what i was so affected by this reading that i went and i i started to look for the documents of my of my own great grandfathers and i um wrote emails uh, to the archives and said you know this is these are the persons i'm looking to i had, i'm looking for i had to give their names and their dates of birth but i also talked to two people in my family and it's so intriguing what i got from them so this is going to be the the personal part here and i'm i want to frame it by saying that i am super privileged to have people in my family to be able to identify people in my family who ca who i can ask those questions that was the first step that i could just take you know i i know where i'm from i know um the geographical location, I know the names, the dates of birth. And um, there are two people in my family who I talked to. Uh, one was my beloved aunt, my dad's sister, and one was um, uh, my dad's cousin, um, who is a, a minister, Protestant minister. And um, the Protestant minister is the kind of record keeper of the family. So he has the family tree and all the dates. And it was so easy to just call him and say, can you tell me when the great grandpa was born, the exact date? And then he launched into, because I said, I want to, you know, start exploring this, um, uh, this document and uh, I want to do the, the archival research. And he, he right away lapsed into a story how my great grandpa was uh, forced to join the party, the NSDAP in 1937 um, because there were threats in the village that he might be sued for illegal um, distillation of uh, potato liquor, potato schnapps. Um, and this is something that all the agricultural uh, little farms did at the time. And uh, apparently his machine had been tampered with and he didn't even know that. And so he was blackmailed into joining the party. Which also resulted to the fact that, you know, once I got the Spruchkammerakte, this document, it said joining date, and it was it was re really intriguing for me because it it certified my my um, uncle's story. So um, it has a joining date for the NSDAP, and it said um, the recommendation for this person post forty five was not to make them ever uh, a participant in any administrative uh, process again. So not to have him join uh, communal politics, not to have him run for office or anything. Um, and it's really, you know, it's understandable. And that's the way that my uncle told me the story. It's like, it was understandable. He was blackmailed, but he wasn't an adherent to the Nazi ideology. That's what I heard in between the lines. Um, right, right, right. And I hadn't even asked that question. I hadn't even asked what my, was my great-grandpa a Nazi or not. Uh, but that's the kind of story I got uh, right away. That's the, cultural, that's the cultural question, though, because yes. it's very similar to, in the former Soviet Union, very similar to how people were blackmailed to join the Red Party. Mm -hmm. It was the same process. It could be for anything. Mm -hmm. You know, you you didn't... Um, 
I don't know, you you missed a month of work and nobody knows where you were. Yeah. So if you don't join the party, you know, you're going to be fired. I don't know, some stupid reasons, but it's it, you, people were forced into these movements quite often. But it's a taboo thing to talk about. Yes. And it, I mean, I still you know? don't know if he, you know, adhered to Nazi perspectives. I, I still don't know if he was an anti-Semite. I still don't know. I can't ask yeah. him. And um, apparently nobody else in the family seems to know how he thought about this. So um, it was interesting to me to discover that I had this privilege on the one hand to have the the archive uh, and the memory at hand. But then when I talked to my uh, aunt, she had the emotional stories. She had the mm -hmm. stories of how um, my grandpa, um, so my dad's dad, he was a prisoner of war. Uh, and he um, he got caught after he was up in Crimea um, and his battalion, um, he was in charge of the horses. So he went and watered the horses and then the battalion was attacked and everybody except him died. He was the only survivor of his group. And uh, then he got uh, imprisoned and nobody knew what was going on and nobody knew what had happened to the battalion. And he basically walked home. And, uh, mm. you know, on any given day, I think this was 48 or 49, um, my great-grandma just heard the door opening and heavy steps on the uh, on the stairs, and she knew it was him. You know, and that was a... It still it gives you goosebumps, um, mm -hmm. because he was, he was 20. He was 20. Oh, my gosh. Wow. When he left. So, wow. um... um They didn't know anything. They were like 18. This is also in the book, Noah Cook's book. They were like 18, 20 years old. You know, that's the other thing. If you ask about were these soldiers all Nazis or not, you know, did they maybe yeah. believe in the ideology or not? Um, I don't know what to say to people because do I want to go and tell them that they were 20 when they were, you know, sent off into the war? They were young boys. And oh still, my gosh, I don't yeah. want to, you know, I still want to, I don't want to utter an apology for anything, but it's very private. And I got asked these questions when I was in the States over and over because I was there as an exchange student in Minnesota um, when uh, Germany decided they wouldn't war, they wouldn't join the Iraq war effort. This was Bush mm -hmm. too. Uh, and there were huge protests and we were international students and we were debating whether we should protest um this war effort of the US and we decided not to protest it but I had huge debates with uh, other international American students and they asked me you know what's your story what's your grandpa's stories were they were they Nazis do they kill Jews you know or did they do something mm -hmm. else and um, back then I wasn't ready to answer any of these questions I don't know that I am right now but that's that's the the personal story that we're looking at here when we when we look at this this book but also i want to focus on the fact that i have the privilege of having the archive okay so you know i feel like from just again being a writing teacher for a long time and writing you know book coaching a lot of memoir writers and teaching memoir and writing memoir i feel like these kinds of stories are personal stories always i mean you and i are both historians in our own capacities but history when it's Generic. I'm using that term as a generalization in a way. You know, when you read history in a textbook, uh, the writer is doing their best to to collect 
sources, right, and create a cohesive narrative. But ultimately, they don't know. You know, you, they don't have 100% answers to everything that they're writing about. Uh, but I feel like these kinds of stories, especially these complex types of narratives, are personal. So when somebody says, um, you know, did your family do these, commit these atrocity, atrocities, you're... This family history is one of millions, right? Mm. And every family history has its own history mm -hmm. and its own answers. What I'm always wondering about, again, because I feel, and I was really kind of surprised by this. Um, this is my own personal learning, I guess, uh, uh, journey. I was surprised by the parallels between, between Soviet and German narratives during that time. Mm. What were these young people who were joining the 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 war what were they told in the first place oh i How don't do think we they know? were giving a what choice they were told. to begin with they were just drafted yeah. right yeah because they were not given a choice in soviet mm -hmm. union a lot of ethnic people you know ethnic uh soldiers from ethnic groups that were basically not asked to be you know they were not um offered to join they were ordered and sent to the front lines were not given choices. They were not explained anything. They were sent there to die, mm -hmm. right? And I know the same types of um, groups were also sent by the German effort also to die. These young kids, you know, what were they told? They probably will not were not really told much of the of the the reality of what the people in power wanted to do. Mm. So how could they have known or made the made um, conscious decisions about what they were doing and how they felt about whatever the effort was? Because if you are young, you're 15, and you're told you are going to defend your country, which is what every Soviet movie is about, they're going to defend their country, right? Which is what every war story is about. No matter what, we're defending our country. You know, when the Americans went overseas, we're defending our country. That's what a lot of people believe mm. because they're told this in order to feel like they're doing something worth the effort, mm. right? So I feel like these questions, I understand these questions where people ask, well, you know, what did your family do? But I feel like it's oversimplified and the answer might not never be satisfying to the person asking because they probably already have a preconceived notion yeah. of, yeah. you know, the culture behind it, yeah, which is why I found this belonging so fascinating yes. because it's not something that I ever considered. In fact, I, I, in the beginning, I have a, I had a second moment of resistance. You know, like, well, what, what could I possibly learn <laughs> from a German reckoning yes, with their yes. history? Right, you I know everything little, about this had history. Your stereotype <laughs> going on, yeah. But you know what? This is what the world sees. And when I write about Roma culture, same stereotypes yes. follow me. Mm. What can I possibly learn from, you know, a Roma person? Yeah. I can't learn anything from that. I'm told that all the time to my face. Wow. You know. So this was a, a great lesson to read this book and, and your personal story, too, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's on, it's ongoing. Um It really has become a bit of a palindrome for me talking to you about writing. um uh, memoirs, um, reading Heimat, uh, that's the German name. I also did a little 
re-engagement with the term Heimat, belonging is, is uh, that's the German version of it. And Heimat is such a charged concept in German cultural history mm. that we can't even begin with talking about all its different meanings. I just wanted to um, talk about one specific meaning that's often quoted in this context. It's Ernst Bloch, German philosopher's quote, uh, saying that um, es schien uns etwas in die Kindheit, von dem wir erst am Ende erfahren, was es ist, die Heimat, die zugleich eine Erinnerung und eine große Hoffnung ist. Something, and this is my translation, it's off the cuff translation here, something shone unto our childhood, and we only retrospectively found out what this was, our belonging, equal parts a memory and a great hope. Hmm. So this is Ernst Bloch on this uh, Heimat uh, concept. And he says, you know, we had something in the childhood, but we only understood it retrospectively if it went well. And this is, it's I, I like about this, that it doesn't, he doesn't say it must be the beautiful childhood or the no, idyllic one. You know, childhood is, it is what it is. It can include trauma, but it's the childhood mm -hmm. that where we start anchoring this concept of belonging and we only found out in retrospective and it's equal parts memory and hope. Equal parts memory and hope that's so intriguing mm. um because memory misconstrues things but it also gives us a sense of purpose for the now and for the future and i think that's where the um the writing of memoir and the piecing together of identities is so so key in this context and i feel like identity is ever shifting because as you said mem memory is is a also a sh ever shifting thing Uh, there's this concept uh, writers call flashbulb memory, and it talks to how we mostly remember things strongly when they're connected to a strong emotion. Mm. We don't remember everything. Yeah. I mean, it's impossible, right? So if you think about your childhood memories, you'll probably have a set of memories, good or bad, uh, even some that seem neutral but probably are not, that are always connected to a strong emotion that they evoked. And so we're, we are emotional beings, even though we, we always resist that. <laughs> you know? We think we're more logical than mm, anything else. Mm. Um, so then what is, what is this memory if it's connected to emotional reaction to the happenings in our childhood as we grow and mature? Hopefully we mature, right? Does that memory, that emotional response to memory change? Are we empowered to change it if we wish to? Mm. Right? And see how that makes identity and belonging yes. even more complex. Yes, yes. <laughs> and I mean, specifically, how do we deal with the gaps um, where we have, like, where we should have memory, but we don't? How do we deal with the people who didn't make it? The things we don't know, Um Do we deal with these unknown things to us or not? Do they how do they shape us? And that's that's not knowable to anyone. That's why I mm -hmm. I like your um, what you're talking about when you say uh, you know it's not capital H history, it's not the archive, it's not the documents, it's not when I when I come when I looked into the documents, I ordered them and I opened them. I was I had this moment where I said, oh my god, what do I find out now? And you know, but still I couldn't. You know, it was just a few lines written on paper and it wasn't like mm. super shocking or it was just a record. 
Um, and I felt there was so much more behind this when my uncle told me the story of this blackmailing into the party membership. So it's important to hear for the in-between tones. It's important to also maybe take time to digest and go through things. That's what I learned from reading this book and from talking to you. And um, I think it's a, it's a, it's a good time to be doing this. Obviously, you talked about, you know, young people being fed to the Kanonfutter, as we call it in German. This is happening right now. We have a war in Europe, first really big war since um, World War II. Everybody's afraid, and rightfully so. So um, there's uh, Ukrainians on the one hand, um, there's um, Russians on the other hand. All of them fight for mm -hmm. their country. Gives you pause and yeah. makes you wonder. Um, and we've seen lots of media propaganda, misconstruals, um, lots of pitting one people against the others and young people being asked to stand up for something that they supposedly are brainwashed to believe in. So this is a timely conversation that we need to have. Well, I hear and I, I see a lot of videos coming out of uh, Russia made by individuals, you know, um, just recording people's reactions to what's going on. And what I'm seeing is that a lot of people don't want this violence, but have no choice. Mm. So same thing, you know, this is a vicious cycle of our history. And what I don't understand is why we cannot accept. Why is there so much strife about this perceived about these perceived differences that we, we we have I mean we don't really if you think about it right but we take these differences more seriously than we take our respect for life and our understanding of how short life is and how we all kind of end up in the same place it doesn't matter what the history books say what records we find what letters we read we all end up in the exact same place mm. in the exact same way And it feels like it's so these these conversations, these these conflicts are unnecessary. They're taking away space from real engagement, real embracement and love and acceptance and belonging, you know. Yes. And we just keep we just keep re-traumatizing ourselves mm. and each other, mm. you know. Yeah. And this is a this applies to all kinds of conversations. I mean, in U.S. right now, the, the gender conversations, the immigration conversations are every, on everybody's minds. And I just sometimes when I'm really, really exhausted by this, I just think, why, why is there lack of just acceptance and tolerance? It doesn't seem like it should be that difficult. This also, you know, this also brings us back maybe full circle, maybe not full circle, so wrong metaphor here, um, but a reverberation of the opening, uh, how we started out uh, with talking about your memoir writing project and the beautiful title that I want to close with today, All of Us Fragile and Brave, is Oksana Malafiotti's new memoir. It's in the workings, um, and I feel super happy that you took the time to talk to me about the what and the how of this writing process. And I'm very excited to, you know, read it once it's out, once it's done. Thank you so much, Oksana, for taking the time today. Thank you. This, this was wonderful.
just so you know, once again, the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host, not the America Centrum, which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy. Thanks again for listening.